Pele leaned in and said something to Freddie. Don't let them change you. Keep working on what makes you different and what makes you special. It was great advice, but it caused me some problems. But what could change Freddie do? Soccer is going to explode and it's going to be around this kid. We were the Beatles. Everywhere we went, it was the Freddie show. And with that came the expectation and with that came the pressure. New episodes of American Prodigy drop Tuesdays from Blue Wire Podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Here's Where It Went Wrong, the show where me and Andrew Nadeau have on one of our favorite comedians every week to talk about one of our favorite things in pop culture, history, and sports, and trace its history to figure out where exactly it went off the rails. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Andrew Nadeau. Andrew, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. It was uh, just Thanksgiving, which means this episode should be coming out like Christmas now. We are finally ahead of the game. So uh, getting ready for Christmas, Wen. How are you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm great. I actually started doing my shopping today. This is like the seventh episode where we've mentioned Thanksgiving. <laughs> we've done like these as a marathon, but it's all around the same holiday. That's our only touchstone for how you're doing. It's it. I mean, look, there was a lot of Thanksgiving work around everything. And yes, we realize you could be listening to this at any time, but... But time doesn't really make as much sense when you're recording these back to back. It's like we've got a lot going on. So, guys, I hope you're enjoying Thanksgiving next year. Maybe listen to this again. It'll still be relevant. I mean, Andrew accidentally got himself a 20 pound turkey for just himself (laughs) and his girlfriend. So, yeah, he is kind of in a Thanksgiving limbo here for the foreseeable future. It was delicious. It came out great. Well, awesome. And today, guys, I am so excited. Our guest today, you know his voice from the Venture Brothers. You've seen him in the Comedy Central show Review, also on Hulu's Difficult People. Guys, I'm so excited about this. We have on the very funny James Urbaniak. James, how are you today? Thank you. I'm good. I'm also in Thanksgiving limbo. I'd mentioned to you before we started recording that I bought a 17-pound turkey, slightly lighter, for my wife and cat, and uh, we're going through it slowly but surely. So yeah, happy post-Thanksgiving. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. All that. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you for having me on. Is the cat doing its part on knocking down that turkey? It gets a a tiny uh, pinky nail sized fragment every day. So, you know, hey, every bit helps. Every bit helps. (laughs) Every little bit helps. I'm so excited uh, that you agreed to do the show. And when you said the topic, I was just like, how did we not even do this episode already? So we're going to get into Hollywood. We're going to get into the, the creation and the destruction of the Hollywood system as it was created. Andrew, you started doing this research a while back. How about you kick us off? Yeah, so obviously I took things way too far because I found like the origin of film was very relevant into how it became Hollywood in the first place rather than New York based. So let's start in 1891 with William Kennedy Laurie Dixon who developed the kinetograph. Oh my God, really? <laughs> yeah, that's where we're going to start. And I wish I had a piano so I could play some ragtime yeah. music here. <laughs> the entertainer should be playing yeah, in the background while you're just like, we're going to start in 1891 with someone you haven't heard it's, of. Look, okay, <laughs> Dixon worked for Thomas Edison. I promise you this is relevant, okay? so No, this is, I love this stuff. Yes, it's fascinating, or I think it is, and we'll see. I'm going to enjoy this if no one else does. I'll just say that. <laughs> this is a podcast just for the three of us, and maybe just the two of us, depending on how Wen feels at the end of this. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll check in and let you know how I'm feeling about it. So <laughs> Dixon uh, has invented the kinetograph, which is, uh, he's, this is one of the early steps in actual film. It's viewed through the kinetoscope. You've got a little box with a peephole. That's where you watch movies. And he has developed this for Edison, who just on principle 
I strongly dislike, and there's a lot on Edison in Hollywood. We could do a whole Edison episode, really, yeah. if you want to get into that. Yeah, he's quite a character. He is. And right, I mean, James, you were in Tesla, right? I do have a small part in uh, in Michael Amrieta's uh, new biopic, Tesla, yes. Uh, where Edison is 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 a competitor and, and you know kind of a foil. Exactly. Yeah. So which is I feel like is what he is. He to was everything. definitely that. Yeah. <laughs> so Edison has like no interest in film projection. He considers it to be financially non-viable, despite the fact that versions of this are kind of already popular from Magic Lanterns, which was developed in the seventeenth century. That's a little bit too far back. We're going to skip seventeenth century. <laughs> no, no, please, Andrew. You said you did all the research. Please tell me about the seventeenth century magical lanterns. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, the magic lanterns were a basic form of projection using shadow and early light. It it was impressive when you were in the 1600s and had zero entertainment, but (laughs) that was about it. So Edison has no interest in commercial. He thinks it's going to be looking through the box. That's about it. So these competing companies managed to achieve far better projection, obviously the Lumiere brothers being the most famous. And Edison is extremely litigious. He has this massive human inventors. He claims the patents for everything they create. Then anyone that tries to use these devices gets sued. Tesla famously got the contract to light the 1893 World's Fair over Edison. Edison refused to let him use GE light bulbs. So he invented a more efficient light bulb. (laughs) He invented the fuck you light bulb. What a petty bitch. Exactly. It was a very cool design, actually. It plugged directly rather than screw it. But yeah, so. (laughs) You can't use the GE, but you can use the FU. Exactly. (laughs) So, but the thing is, it doesn't really matter if Edison wins most of the time because he has the money to tie up smaller companies and legal fees until they fold and sell him their patents. But Edison. God, what a piece of shit. I know, he absolutely was. But Edison completely missed the mark on the future of film. Like in 1909, business is already booming, particularly in Chicago, where Wen and I are which has this huge immigrant population. Obviously now it's silent films and they can enjoy these without speaking English that well. So in 1909, it had 407 theaters in a city of 2 million people. Uh, Nickelodeons, which you probably know from the TV station, was the actual term at the time for you. Uh, you paid a nickel, you watched three to four short films over half an hour, and that's it. Andrew, can I just interject real quick to say, when you sent me the, the research and I, I read the phrase Nickelodeon in there, I was like, oh, fuck you. No, it's not. <laughs> they did not name the Children's Cartoon Programming Network after nickel theaters from the early turn of the century. They sure did. Because they knew that children would immediately respond to a reference to uh, turn of the century technology. <laughs> Look, if there's anything children love, it's old-timey history. That's yeah. right. <laughs> so producers are having trouble meeting the demand, delivering these films. So distribution companies come up, which is where Edison sees an opportunity to monopolize. Edison attempts to corner the market. He's made the motion picture patents company. He's combined with some of his rivals. It holds 16 patents covering projection, camera, film stock. He's also made some awesome movies like that five second movie of a guy sneezing, just like the first action film. Yeah, my God. Right. His content was terrible. Don't forget the runaway hit train pulling into station. (laughs) People abandoned the theater in fright as that thing came towards them. That's right. Now, that was a French movie, I believe. This was Lumiere Brothers. Yes. Them pushing the envelope. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, go on. Didn't mean to interject. But the sneeze is the sneeze is a pretty cool movie. There's a guy. He's not sneezing. Then he sneezes, which is the conflict. And then the resolution is he's finished sneezing. Really a classic three-act structure. All right, I'll shut up. I was about to say three-act structure. You got your beginning, your middle, and your end. It's the hero's journey, really condensed. This is actually a great point because this is all that Edison thinks that film is going to be. He thinks it's this novelty. Yeah, it's cool to see stuff move. It might as well be a kaleidoscope or something. 
you know. Exactly. That's all he sees it to be. He even convinces Kodak to refuse to sell film stock to anyone but Patton's company. And he sets up General Film Exchange as a distribution company to enforce Patton's company's rules. Basically, you do what they say or you don't get the movies. But Edison has no understanding of the appeal of film. So he sets it up like a factory. It's an assembly line. He bought a certain number of movies from, from this set of producers one day of the week. The number purchased or the amount of each title would not change based on the success of a film. If it's a huge hit, theaters want to hold it over, doesn't matter. And he charges the same no matter what. So there is zero incentive to make better movies. No matter what, everyone makes the same. They're going to sell the same no matter what. If you want to rent Man Kisses Pretty Girl on Cheek, you can have that for the same amount no matter how long you want to rent. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, this is really the basis of his business model. And his justification for all of this is moral quality control. He wants to keep the French and German films out. He wants to keep people. Blue Bloods already hate immigrants and who are packing the theaters. They'll occasionally, there are articles from this time about the wealthy have gone into these theaters and they're describing it like slums and saying they couldn't possibly understand the high-end theater they want to see, which is, again, Man Kisses Pretty Woman. It's not like this is advanced theater here. (laughs) But this is also a big issue with the so-called golden age of Hollywood in the 30s and 40s with the Hayes office and and the uh, institutional censorship. Absolutely. But that's foreshadowing. But it's all there at the beginning. All these issues are there at the beginning. It is, but it sets the groundwork for all of this. Yeah, you guys remember that. That's coming back later. <laughs> yeah, so there's a quiz. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this this was the basis for the, the future destruction here. And Edison doesn't think the public can handle anything smart. He doesn't think they can handle anything longer than 20 minutes. So the goal is just mass production of short, censored films where there is zero focus on production or value or quality. And here's the big kicker. He refuses to give actors credits. Their name cannot be listed on the film in any form, because he's worried if they get famous, they'll ask for more money. Man, he was a early proponent of TikToks. Yeah. <laughs> hey, he say what you will about him. He was right about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> turns out, turns out completely right. Yeah. Too long. We just want very short snippets of very, like, no one gets credit, but we're all scrolling them. Never underestimate the ego and greed of the actor. That's all I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> So the Patents Company aligns himself with the National Board of Censorship. In 1915, he got the Supreme Court to say free speech wasn't protected in film. This is massive and not reversed until 1952. And this is to disallow what they call the cheap and inferior foreign films. Which brings us to Carl Lemley. When? Tell us about Carl. So Carl Lemley was a German immigrant. So like strike one, really, <laughs> when you think about it. They already hated him. So he started as a Nickelodeon owner in Chicago in 1906. And once again, every time I say Nickelodeon owner, it just makes me smile. But he started a a rental service when a distributor let him down. So basically, he started making his own productions independent of Edison's system. He made the independent motion picture company, IMP, which would later be renamed Universal Pictures. Guys, Universal Pictures started in 1906. That's wild to me. He's like the first big uh, mogul as we know them today. Yeah, just completely went in there and just like ran roughshod over Edison's game because Edison had what was basically a monopoly. He was the only one creating them. You couldn't buy film from anyone else. You couldn't buy the right cameras from, from anyone else. You could only get it from Edison. So what happened was uh, Lamely 
poached Florence Lawrence, who was part of Edison's like stable of actors from Biograph Studios. She was a well-known face, but no one knew her name because that was a big thing back then. They didn't want to give actors credit because then they would ask for more money. So Edison kind of kept that in the background. So he gets this actress to come over. And what he does is say, I'm going to put your name on the marquee. People are going to know that this is a Florence Lawrence, great name, picture. Years before Jack Black, a cool rhyming name for a movie star, by the way. <laughs> Years before we had like every comic book character was Bruce Banner or That's Peter right. Parker. She they were just the like first. names that sound similar are fun. Before she went to Biograph, she was getting paid $20 a week to be an actress and the seamstress for the movie. Biograph paid her a whopping $25 a week. And then she moves over to uh, to work with Lemley. It was like, yeah, I'm just going to make you famous. You can make whatever you want. She was a double threat back then, a seamstress and an actress. Yeah. <laughs> she worked in wardrobe and uh, in front of the camera. Yeah. Amazing. So he promised her he's going to make her a star. She will be the first movie star. And that's a big deal. But how is he going to do this? Because it's never been done before. Well, he starts a rumor that she was hit by a streetcar and killed. <laughs> and then when everyone picks it up and they're like, hey, that face, you know, from that movie, she's dead. And everyone's pretty sad about it. He comes out there. and He's like, no, no, no. She's alive. And she's starring in a new motion picture and just puts that movie out there to prove she's alive. People pretty much went to go see the resurrection of Christ in these Nickelodeon theaters. By the way, I'm calling my agent first thing Monday to try to work this, uh, I rework this idea. It's a great move. We're going to say you choked on that 17 pound turkey during the recording <laughs> of this episode. Yeah, exactly. Tragically killed Thanksgiving weekend on a turkey bone. No, he's back and he's in, he's got a new YouTube series. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so uh, so he puts out this new movie, The Broken Oath. Great title. And has her make a big public appearance with her co-star to show off that she's alive and people just go nuts for it. Yeah, it's a little secular Christ story, actually, when you think about it, if I may be so bold. She comes back from the dead. But go on. She comes back from the dead, and now you can pay a nickel, and you could see a dead person perform on screen. Remember, never been done before. Oh, okay, done once to very popular acclaim, but this second time, also pretty good. <laughs> it's great. What happened was, also, during the makings of these movies, Lamely was stealing everything he could. He was using cameras that infringed on Edison's copyrights, but when people would come around to check to make sure he wasn't doing that, they would switch them out for the compliant cameras and be like, no, no, we're filming on these. Or they would take the casings of those non-compliant cameras and build them around the Edison-approved cameras to be like, no, we're just using these pieces of shit. We're not stealing from you, Mr. Edison, which I think is a pretty solid bit. So this is really the start of how Hollywood develops too, because Edison is sending out these investigators to watch the, these movies, to watch the filming, to see if there's anything that's infringing. And in response to all of this, Edison has, has filed 289 infringement suits against IMP. And at this time, Hollywood is just starting to be a place of film. And not only are the judges more lenient towards these patent infringement suits, but it's also really hard to get people out there. We covered this in the train episode. <laughs> it takes a long time to, to get out there. So actually following through with a suit is very challenging. Obviously, Edison is in Menlo Park uh, in New Jersey. So they get out of New York. They move to Hollywood. Aside from the better climate, lack of rain, the ease of access to desert, forests, mountains, and ocean, and cheap labor because it's still a developing city. 
a lot of Hollywood is just getting away from Edison so you can do your own thing. I absolutely love that Hollywood is partly founded on just being like, look, you can't communicate really automatically. So if we're on the other side of the country, by the time Edison finds out we're fucking him over, it's been three weeks. (laughs) Right. So yeah, 1912, they, they head over. 1915 is when Hollywood really booms and they everyone kind of realizes this is going to be the source of film. Before this is New York, there's a bit in Chicago, but this is really the ideal place. And some consider this to be the start of the golden age, but at, at least it's the start of the format that's built uh, into the golden age. Most consider it more like 1930 hits, but James, how do you tell us a bit about the golden age of Hollywood? Yeah, well, I, this trajectory is right. And then like uh, the silent era becomes really big and and that's when you start having these studios start being built. Universal is Mr. Lemley. And then later, his son, Carl Jr., who was known as, <laughs> who was not the hamburger magnate. Damn but, it. Yeah. <laughs> I got so excited. Yeah, yeah, I know. Who they used to call Jr., but he ran Universal. And then, you know, all the famous studios uh, that we still know today, Warner Brothers and, you know, Paramount, uh, start coming into being. MGM. And uh, usually, these usually come into being through, you know, a few mergers here and there. And then there's a sort of system that gets put into place. They're corporations, and they're run by these sort of hard-boiled kind of street guys, like Louis B. Mayer and uh, the Warner Brothers, who tend to be Jews from New York, who don't have formal educations and got into this business because of the anti-Semitism that existed in the business world. And they they were like, all right, we're going to go off and work in this wacky Nickelodeon business. And they worked their way up. And the guys who like are the presidents of these companies are these kind of tough guys. But in the early days, they hire assistants and producers who have a real sense of story and art in a funny way. And that's really interesting to me that like some of the early executives, it's a very famous guy named Irving Thalberg who had like a white hot run at MGM in the thirties. And then he died super young. He was sort of chronically unhealthy. He had various health issues. And like he died before he was 40, I think. But he was sort of the first guy to really oversee these productions, but he had a real flair for story and filmmaking and was a very, very important figure. But there were other people like this throughout that era. Yeah, so basically you now have, instead of it just being uh, adaptations of popular books and things like that, you're actually having like full-on stories made for film. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them, and this is still a thing today which hasn't changed at all, a lot of them are properties that existed already. So there certainly are adaptations of books, a ton of adaptations of plays that were on Broadway and stuff, except, of course, the adaptations sometimes radically change the source material, you know. But my way into this was, I, I, I love actors, and I am an actor. I've always had sort of a, a fantasy. I just sort of think, like, what would it be like to be someone like me who's, like, not a big star, but is like a working, you know, character actor who goes from thing to thing. I audition for a few things a week. Now and then someone puts me in something, and I get enough of these jobs to sustain a career, which is great. And I'm lucky and happy about that. But I've always been fascinated by the studio system where basically these companies were doing everything. They had their own producers. They had their own directors. They had their own writers. And they had their own stock company of actors, which included movie stars and supporting people like me, the guy or woman who would come in with, you know, in a couple of scenes, the librarian, the doctor. Just steal the show and then get out of there. 
2020 has already reshaped how we work and it's almost over. Businesses across the globe are challenged to be their most efficient, which means every hire is critical. Indeed is here to help. Indeed is the number one job site in the world with more total visits than any other job site according to Comscore. Indeed helps you find quality candidates quickly so you can focus on hiring the person you need to keep your business going. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time and there are no long-term contracts. And now, Indeed's new way of matching you with candidates instantly delivers a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job criteria that you can contact the moment you sponsor a job, making Indeed the only job site that can move as fast as you do. 73% of online job seekers in the U.S. visiting Indeed each month according to Comscore, total visits. So it's clear Indeed can help you get the quality hire you need. And that's why more than 3 million businesses worldwide use Indeed for hiring. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job posts, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at BetOnline. BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to BetOnline today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE at BetOnline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Just steal the show and then get out of there. 100%. And that you would... Not every supporting actor did this, but a lot of them had contracts... Some still freelanced. Many did. But, you know, you got in there. You would say, I would go to MGM and I would be hired as a stock company player, which means I would play supporting parts and whatever came up. And every week I would go into MGM at Culver City and they would print a bulletin every day that told you what was happening and you would find out what you were assigned to. There's no auditioning. <laughs> Maybe sometimes the director would read you for something, but mostly you're like, James Rubaniak, all right, he plays guys in suits who talk a certain way and are kind of persnickety. So he'll come in and, and he'll tell Ginger Rogers that they're foreclosing on her house. <laughs> <laughs> and that's And they're like, you're doing that. Or you're someone like Margaret Hamilton, who I looked her up. She actually freelanced. She worked all the time and she was a type. Her type was she was sort of a spinster, a non-glamorous 30-ish lady who often played uptight librarians and so forth. And then one week she gets a call saying they want you to play the witch in this children's book adaptation at uh, MGM. And she goes over there and she fucking gets the witch in The Wizard of Oz. (laughs) 
it's crazy to think of those things as because like at this time, they're basically monopolies. Like the theaters are owned by the production company. That's a huge part of this is that all the studios also owned theaters. And that also affected they wanted their stuff to make money, but they knew that whatever they made, there would be a place to show it and they would get some box office return on that. From the beginning, uh, there was sort of glimmerings of from like Washington going, ah, it's a bit of a monopoly, but it sort of ran its course for like 20 years until finally by the end, after World War II, they really started clamping down. And that's when that, and that was a major factor in the end of that system. But yeah, it was, there was a security to that. And there's something very intriguing to me about that. And I got to say at its height, at its best, I think the studio system was collaborative. And just personally, I'm very collaborative. You know, actors have to be. You're basically just providing the raw material for a performance that's going to be created by the director and the editors. And, you know, it's just an inherently collaborative job. And I've been writing for a few years now. I have a writing partner and I love having a writing partner. I just like collaborating. I I sort of creatively, my instinct is to work with other people to create the best possible thing. And I think at its best, the studio system was that. It was a collaborative environment. There were lots of rules and each studio sort of had its own style. So you are kind of working in a grid. Like Warner Brothers was known for sort of more low budget sort of gangster movies, sort of, you know, characters who were sort of streetwise. MGM's whole thing was sort of more glamorous. They had the big musicals and sort of sophisticated stories that took place in drawing rooms with the best looking actors, you know. And Universal kind of carved out a horror thing in the in the 30s with these classic movies that we still know and love. And Universal was actually the one studio that didn't own theaters, but they kind of found their niche which was sort of a low-budget niche that really became a huge thing, like Frankenstein and Dracula. So if you work for these studios, you were also going to work in a certain genre, a certain style. Right, like Boris Karloff is the mummy, he's Frankenstein. Like, you knew Boris Karloff and Long Chaney because they were the faces associated with those monsters. If you had a monster flick, you had Long Chaney, you had Boris Karloff come in. Yeah, And I mean, today we can go, oh, well, an actor wants to have variety. And sure you do. And I guess there was less of that for the stars back then, because also, you know, Mr. Mayor and Mr. Warner would be like, no, I don't want Jimmy Stewart to play the bad guy. He's a sweet guy. You know, (laughs) there was a very specific idea about how you were typed. And you had some notes for the episode and you talked about even the naming, which is hilarious, how they would they would give stars fake names. I was reading, uh, there's a great book about the studio system called um, The Genius of the System by a guy named Thomas Schatz. And there's a line in there where David O. Selznick, there was an actress, uh, I forget her real name, but she became known as Jennifer Jones. And she was actually like, Selznick fell in love with her. But he, her name was like Phyllis Brown or something. She had a very pedestrian name. And, and Selznick said to his people, I want a good name like Veronica Lake. Now, there's a great name because <laughs> Veronica like one of the big stars of the 40s, who's still pretty remembered. But when you think about it, that is the ultimate fake Hollywood name, you know. It sounds kind of classy, you know. Oh, yeah, no, it, it has like a, a very, uh, it has such a great quality. A gr- it just has a movie star quality to it. But the whole naming of it thing just reminds me of that old Simpsons joke where they're just like, oh, I'm making something like this, but, you know, uh, flowerier. And then he leaves the room and all the writers are sitting there going like, is that good with you guys? Yeah, yeah, sure, that's good. <laughs> like Exactly. And that's the thing that's even like in the 1930s, Star is Born, there's a scene where they give this actress a name and it's played as a comedy scene. Like they're making fun of it, but it's still such a thing. 
but that's just indicative of how meticulous the sort of the studios were about presentation and, you know, I guess the sort of surface aspect of this. But at a deeper level, there were just a lot of really creative people, including executives and producers, who just, when it worked, it really gelled. And these movies are great because all these different people are working together and finding a balance. And there's something great about that. And today, it's much more, you're working with more of a pickup ensemble. Everyone's freelancing. There are people who like to work together. But there's something about working for an organization that also understands there's a style that we're going towards here. And there's something very appealing about that to me. And I recognize the liabilities of that as well. <laughs> I was prepared to like be like completely like on the other side of it. But the more you're talking about, it, the more I'm just like, yeah, I love Martin Scorsese movies because I know exactly kind of what I'm going to get. There's a stable of actors here that I very much enjoy. I love the product that he makes, uh, he's kind of assembled his own little repertoire or his own little troupe, and people love it. Yeah, and and he has, he does have a style, and I never thought of him that way because he's such a figure in new Hollywood. Oh, of course. He's, he's uh, I mean, Mount Rushmore of directors, but he has assembled his own troupe and his style, and you know you're, where you go, he has done things like Hugo and like big departures, but you know, you have in your mind, I mean, when The Irishman came out, it was because you were seeing kind of the ultimate Scorsese movie. And like, that was the appeal was you are seeing this stable of actors and this director and the genre you love him for. So yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely am now coming more to your side <laughs> talking about it. Yeah, exactly. And I think, yeah, that's, that is, is sort of the feel that's sort of what happened at its best. And then at its not best, they're also just churning out product because they own these theaters. They need to get stuff out there. So there's a lot of uninspired stuff. There's a lot of crap happening in that era as well. And then, of course, there's the ridiculous self-censorship, which they always found ways to get around. But that there was like the production code and concerns, you know, there was like the Catholic Liege of Decency, which were extremely influential. So it's funny to watch like silent films and even pre-code where characters actually go to bed together like they don't show them having sex but they wake up together like it's clear they act like people do and suddenly like in the early 30s they can't show that anymore but they could still allude to it they could always allude to real life and they could even allude to language and stuff in witty ways and even then there's something kind of there's a pleasure to when you have to allude to something then just show it there's there's something inherently dramatic about that too. So there's there's even a silver lining to the censorship that happened because it, it makes you think creatively and often quite wittily. And to see it might actually be even a little sexier and funnier because you're alluding to what's happening than actually showing it. Yeah, constraints can like breed uh, more more play. I really loved when uh, when James had mentioned this topic because generally the studio system is talked about so negatively, but it's really the abuse of the studio system that, that was an issue, uh, which we can get into. Which it. is here. <laughs> where it went wrong. Andrew, you got to plug the name of the episode. This is the second time I've had to remind you of that. I wasn't at here's where I wasn't going to hit it here's where it went wrong till 1952. I have more <laughs> on this. You know how in every episode Marin says, what the fuck? You know, to his yeah. guest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fine. We're going to use it now. Here's where it went wrong. Okay. I'm going to hit the production code. But the first 
mention is is what James had said about the development in the 30s, because they realized that the depth of this and they start realizing, oh, we can use a traditional three act story develops, comes into full bloom here. And they start developing editing techniques and they're able to to change perspective. And they realize the potential of film is absolutely incredible. And I, I think that is in large part because of exactly what James said. This was this large collaborative effort. And for, I think, many people, the fact that it was a studio system was highly beneficial. It was what you hear about the studio system being bad was that the the uh, requirements of women, the abuse of child actors, where obviously Judy Garland having to work 18-hour days on pet pills and then being given sleeping pills to sleep for four hours and pet pills to wake her up four hours later. And this was was the abuse, but ultimately, if you weren't one of those ones at the top, you had consistent working to be who you were. The, the challenge was that there was a persona to maintain along with it. Women were expected to typically be either bombshells or girl next door. And you had to maintain that at all times, occasionally being given a fake backstory as well. So it was really the falsity around this that was an issue, not the system itself. Then you also have like all these, you know, what they call scandal sheets, these uh, Hollywood magazines that try to get scandals. And there's a lot of stuff where you see that referenced in like recent movies about that era, like, you know, LA Confidential and uh, stuff like that. And then there's always like negotiations there's, a, there's actually the Coen brothers have a lot of fun with that in uh, Hail Caesar, where that character is actually the name of that character is based on a real guy. Eddie Mannix was like Louis B. Mayer's right hand man. And he basically was a an executive who controlled production operations. So it's kind of fun. They take the real guy's name, but it's a fake studio. And all the actors in that are sort of based on people, you know, like Scarlett Johansson plays an Esther Williams type character. One of the more one of the more odd stars of the 40s, the the girl who starred in swimming movies. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that that's a thing is just the most incredible. Like, people are just like, people can't get enough of these pool flicks. I actually <laughs> saw my first Esther but, Williams movie like a year or two ago, and she's good. She's got good comedy skills. She's super appealing, you know. And I think she was like an Olympic swimmer or something, and she was very good looking. So they were like, let's put you in the movies. <laughs> and then she had, she had a flair. Yeah. <laughs> she had a skill uh, at light comedy, which is, <laughs> 100% a high skill. Not everyone can do that. And even someone who's good looking and charming in real life, if you put a camera in front of them, they might freeze up. But she's she's really fun and she's good. And I watched a couple of her movies and I understand why people responded to her. And, you know, it's the wartime. People just like the sort of escapist thing which was very big back then. Oh yeah, it's just, it's fun to me that like now we're just like, we have Westerns and superhero movies and like back then they're like, pools. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they didn't have, there wasn't so much the superhero thing, but there were a ton of Westerns and escapist stuff. Like that's just sort of talking about the whole thing of the monitoring of reputations and the way they'd kind of, uh, yeah, even pair people off. Yeah, and that's, yeah, that's not cool. <laughs> They would make Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney go out because Mickey Rooney was, they were afraid that he was going to marry Ava Gardner. You have uh, Rock Hudson being forced into a marriage with Phyllis Gates, even though he was. Oh, any, any gay, I mean, most gay people back then, you had to totally be closeted. Now and then you'd have like a, someone like George Cukor, who was a great director who lived with his lover and was uh, out among Hollywood, but, you know, directors tended to be behind the scenes. So they, you know, the studios weren't, didn't care about covering that up because Americans weren't aware of it. Yeah, nobody really, we didn't have these marquee directors. And yeah, you mentioned Judy Garland, like she was super talented, incredibly talented and became famous at a very young age. And she was taking like amphetamines, you know, 
pep pills, as they used to say, basically just to keep, stay awake because like they were these kids were rehearsing. And also the musicals took a lot of work because they would be rehearsals because you had to get this very meticulous choreography right. And then there was just this sort of indifference to, uh, you know, I don't. I don't know how strict the child labor laws were back then. I, I think they, they, they could only be on set a certain amount of time, but they were really worked hard when they were there. I know for like her whole life, Elizabeth Taylor would kind of allude to how difficult her child star days were because she was an MGM kid star from the time she was like 10 or 11. And then she was that rarest of kid stars who actually grew up to have an incredible <laughs> career as an adult, which doesn't happen that often. It's like her, Judy Foster, and a few others, you know? <laughs> Yeah, Natalie Portman, end of list. <laughs> yeah, who like, but like her really sustained like an A list level stardom through their life. Cause it can, uh, that can really fuck you up. It's, it's sad, it's people joke about it, but it's really not that funny that what, what happens to a lot of kids who become very famous when they're young. But anyway, that's a whole sidebar. <laughs> no, I, I actually had three points where I wonder was with, which would be the where it went wrong. The rules for actors was one. The production code is, is the next. I do want to hit on that, but we're going to save the real one for 1952 when Wen can prompt me and I'll say the line. Yeah, what went wrong? Uh, but Perfect. Um, say the thing. Yeah. Say the line. <laughs> yeah. So 1921, we've got 37 states that have released censorship bills, almost 100 bills, and studios risk having to comply with inconsistent and easily changed decency laws in order to even be allowed to show their movies. And scandals in 1922 have left the public like really suspicious of Hollywood. So studios opt to self-regulate to avoid having to comply with potentially thousands of decency laws as more and more come up. So they hire Hayes, who's president of the MPPDA and former postmaster general and also peripherally involved in the teapot dome scandal, which was almost what I did instead of the train episode. I find that one fascinating. It's amazing, and by the way, how cyclical all these things is. A corrupt postmaster general, can you imagine? Wow, what an old-timey concept. I know. Yeah, right? <laughs> what a weird position to be corrupt. Absolutely. And so for some reason, they choose this guy to pay an absolute fortune, $1.5 million in today's money, to develop what's then called the formula, which is a set of regulations that studios were advised to follow. A list of, of don'ts and be carefuls is what he's called it. The first rule is on profanity. <laughs> Can you imagine being paid $1.5 million to come up with a buzzkill yeah. list? <laughs> well, the first four things he says are, you can't say God, Lord, Jesus, or Christ. That's it. And this shows his bent. And obviously a lot of these rules are designed to enforce Christian traditional values. He says there's, there's no nudity, drug trafficking, sex perversion, which is also code for homosexuality, which uh, is obviously very unfortunate. That's one of the things that they kept as an unwritten rule for far too long. And also you could, but you couldn't even show unmarried sex, you know, with straight people. You weren't supposed to acknowledge that people went to bed together <laughs> if they weren't married. Right. They had two separate beds. Yeah. You were supposed to just cut away to fireworks, trains going yeah. into tunnels. <laughs> yeah. In fact, they had a one foot on the floor rule if couples were seen lying down together. Yeah, th this was just to be very clear that people don't really have sex, even if they're married. It's like that old improv game where someone always has to be lying down, standing yeah. <laughs> up or sitting down. And they've got this be careful rules, too, on, on use of the flag, on arson, use of firearms. And one of the big things here was they didn't want anything that glorified crime or made authority figures look bad. Yeah, the bad guys always had to get it in the end. And uh... Exactly. And th this was, I mean, this was all very specific. And the production code was officially adopted in 1930, but not aware they can enforce it until 1934. And this was a really interesting four years 
wireless developed because they've got a set of general principles prohibiting a picture from lowering the moral standard of those who see it and what they call an exacting list of items that could be depicted. But during these four years, you have this really creative development where it's just directors suddenly have sound. They suddenly have new techniques in editing. They're also coming up with new ways to film. Some of the standards that are used today in methods of filming are being developed in this time. And they can do whatever they want because they've also got a world that has kind of realized Victorian values were too strict and want to see how far they can push it. So like 1931, Frankenstein comes out and Dr. Frankenstein says, now I know what it feels like to be God. And 1935, Bride of Frankenstein comes out. The rule, again, was enforced in 1934. And they have to remove the character's God complex. <laughs> Dr. Frankenstein without a God complex. <laughs> we did Frankenstein all last episode. And like, can you imagine just taking away the driving force of why? And it's now just becomes like a fun thing that he does, which I think a little more fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> hey, lay off. It's my hobby. Don't you have a hobby? He's just doing it for shits and giggles, which like you're grave robbing, right. man. And he's just like, I want to see what would happen. I don't have any agenda yeah. here. It's not like I'm a bad person with a God complex. <laughs> <laughs> I have no agenda. I just wanted to sew these things together and uh, see what happens when you uh, put some electricity in there. <laughs> Well, and that was what was so interesting about this was the things that were wrong were so very specific to, to these values that it was like, no, you, you just have to do it our way all the time. Well, I mean, if you just look at the things where they're like, don't do, and it's just like things like, don't show an unmarried couple having sex, where it's like, be careful, where it's just like, don't show human branding, but oh, be careful about human branding, which is just like, if you can figure out a tasteful way to brand humans Please don't take that tool out of your arsenal. <laughs> if you can't figure out a tasteful way to show the selling of women, to leave it out. But if you can figure it out, like, please put it in your family picture. But like, if it's just like, don't show a woman starting to go into labor, we swear to God, we won't show that film. And they, meanwhile, they still, they could acknowledge these things and even get away with them kind of explicitly. There were exceptions. Like Preston Sturge's The Miracle of Morgan's Creek, which is a great, comedy from the early 40s, which is essentially the 40s version of Juno. It's literally about a teenager girl who gets knocked up and she gets pregnant in the movie and that happens. And what they do is they really go far to basically show that she was raped. I mean, like she got unconscious at a party, which doesn't sound like a comedy, but they basically, they, they get her pregnant, but they basically give you every reason to <laughs> for Mr. Hayes in the Hayes office to go, okay, but she didn't deliberately go off and have sex. This just, she got drunk and she was taken advantage of. But still, like, that's that's a very notable exception that they allowed a teenage girl character to get pregnant. And that's that's the crux of the story. The plot revolves around this event. So you could you could still acknowledge stuff. I just find it funny that it's just like, look, if you want to make your comedy film, you have to have her be sexually assaulted at the beginning. <laughs> that's right. That made it okay. I know. It's 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 actually rather fucked up when you think about it. <laughs> that she did not have, it was not her choice to sleep with this guy. That she gets drunk and then it's suggested she's also like knocks her head on something. And so she's unconscious as well. It's insanely so. But, you know, and then that kind of ran through the 40s. But then like by the early 50s, it was just, it just, it became less enforceable. And people just, films were able to be more explicit and then by the time the studio system's dying in the early 60s, Psycho opens with Janet Leigh and her boyfriend in a hotel in their underwear. Like, there's no question what just happened. But it really, the, the grip of the Hayes office was really strong through the bulk of that era. And uh, yeah, it's bizarre. <laughs> 
it absolutely was. And there were there were a couple specific ones. Like uh, there was actually a nude scene in 1934, right before I came to play with Maureen O'Sullivan in Tarzan and His Mate, which was cut at that point. But they basically said, look, she's she's living in the jungle at this point. He's been a loincloth the whole time. You know, she's adjusted to this world. Ginger Rogers in the gold coin bikini in Gold Diggers of 1933. And actually, one of my favorites was to, as a way to get around this was in Casablanca, where to let us know that uh, Elsa had had sex, they said he pretended he was in love with me and I let him pretend. And it was a beautifully delivered line that- Yeah, I was going to say, fantastic line. Yeah. <laughs> like, to James's point earlier, sometimes when you have to dance around these codes and everything, like you come out with just pure gold. Yeah. And and I think that was a great point was that they found really creative ways and, and they let everything lie in its subtlety. And obviously there were plenty of times when it was really frustrating to try and get around, but also it led to a lot of creativity. And then, as you said, in, in the 1948, the Supreme Court has declared, OK, yeah, you guys are a monopoly and this doesn't really stand. Uh, so it starts breaking up. And here's where it went wrong. The beginning of the end of the golden age. You said it. <laughs> I said it. <laughs> so we've got, let's go to 1959 where Some Like It Hot comes out. And this, they've, they've now released this movie without the certificate of approval from the MPAA. And this was a hit. And the MPAA just basically goes, oh shit, we don't have anything anymore. <laughs> they can do this without us. And this, I mean, overall, th this is a good thing. But because of this destructuring, because now they've got television to compete with, there is a complete overhaul of the studio system where, as James mentioned, they were batch selling to theaters that they owned. They would make one good movie, two okay movies, two not great movies, and they would sell all five and they would be put out. And now theaters are choosing what to put in, which means kind of every movie has to be good. So they're making less movies of higher quality, which overall is a good thing, but it also leads to this selectivity. And now basically the, the big change for me that was the negative was that studios were no longer individually recognizable. Any studio could be making any film. There wasn't this personality to studios anymore because actors weren't linked to them like mgm's not the only one making musicals anymore you don't have just the horror coming out of universal anyone can make a horror movie now yeah that's very true the identities like today i guess you know whoever puts out there are certain genre movies that are associated with studios but for the most part you don't think of uh, these well-known studios having a style you know and uh, yeah, that's it's very true. So then everyone sort of became independent, basically. Actors did, directors were, you worked with the studios. They became like rental houses and uh, distribution uh, machines. But yeah, it, uh, the whole dynamic completely changed. And they were kind of hanging on through the 50s. But like by the, by the end of the 50s and the early 60s, it's basically... That system is is over. It's gone. Again, before this, I wasn't terribly informed about it. My knowledge of the studio system was just about the abuse of the actors. But then you get into the depth of it. And my favorite thing was just your angle on this was of that it was this collaborative effort. And suddenly everyone separated. And it was the only way for them to hold on really was to, to go separate. But it did lose this essence of, uh, I mean, there was there was a, a new form of creativity that was obviously soon to boom in the late 60s. <laughs> there there was suddenly, there wasn't this requirement for family friendliness. And this is where we did see uh, the the appearance of, uh, of, of Scorsese and Kubrick. And you start seeing this creativity where you're making films like hadn't been done before, but it did require a loss of a, a soul, of a uh, an essence that was tied to certain characters, to certain actors, directors, and to cer certain studios as a whole. It uh, it reminds me because and I'm sure everyone who's listened to this podcast is sick of me talking about it. But because I did used to do theater for so long, 
And it just reminds me of, you know, there is times where you'd be working for as an actor, just doing stage shows, you kind of is your hope when you're starting out is to be part of a theater's troupe, pretty much. You're you're right out of college. A bunch of me and my friends signed up to work for a theater for a year, and you are in all of their shows for that year. And it has like that whole collaborative spirit of these are the people who are in your shows. You're working with these directors. You're you're going through these uh, performances. And there's definitely that collaborative spirit of, you know, let's put on a play. Let's put on a show. Oh, my God. I had the same experience. When I started out, I co-ran a small theater company in the late 80s into the early 90s in New York. That was... It was exactly it. We had one main director. We had a core of actors and people that we work with, designers and things. And there was a, from show to show, this is what I was doing in New York when I started out. We all had day jobs. We weren't making money at this. We're working off off Broadway. But it was so creatively satisfying. And there's a shorthand that you develop where, uh, you know, you already know what gets a rise out of the other actor or, you know, the director can start using a shorthand. She, you know, she can just say something weird like, James, you know, you're and make some reference to something. We all know what that is, you know, as opposed to really being more explicit. And sometimes these more offhand directions that come out of a shorthand and an understand of a shared vocabulary can have so much power to them, you know. So, yeah, there's and that's something that was happening at these studios that they had these you know, lifers. They had these uh, people under contract and directors and writers and actors who had knew each other and, and also understood what they were going for, what kind of, what the style was. That's another thing that's really, in, that I've become more interested in. Sort of as I've gotten more into writing is sort of the idea of style and the importance of style, which is which is adjacent to, but separate from technique, <laughs> which is equally important. You know, it's equally important. We've all seen things where we go, it was kind of cool to look at, but there was nothing going on. It was all style. Like that's a put down and it's a legitimate one, but there's also something great about style being part of the thing that you're creating. And even the style almost being a sort of beacon that you follow that helps you solve the creative problems. I think that's that's also interesting to me. I don't know. That's just another one of my sidebars. No, no, no. I love it because I know there is definitely something to be said about it, uh, there being a style behind a picture of you could put up you could take a snapshot of almost any Boz Lerman movie and hold it up and you could probably be like, that's Boz Lerman right there. You could show me a snippet of Tarantino dialogue and I can tell you that Tarantino did it or or Kevin Smith wrote it. I can tell that from their style. That's the thing we really associate with directors is the style. But then the idea that you're working for a studio in the 30s or 40s and there's just a sense of there's a certain house style. And then within that you have variations like you have, you know, they're making a certain kind of movie, but then there's also low budget things and they all have their own units. Like, you know, Mickey Rooney was in these movies called the Andy Hardy movies where he played a teenager in the 30s. And they were basically quickies and they made like 10 of them a year. Like they were take two months. The other amazing thing about the studio system when you read about it is how quick the turnaround was. They would wrap a movie and then they would literally be previewing it like a month later. <laughs> Sometimes even two weeks later, because all the time they're sh that they're shooting, they're cutting. Now it's like the typical thing is you wrap and, the, and a year later the thing comes out. But they were just, it was kind of the equivalent of TV, actually. And so TV has a very quick turnaround. You know, I do a lot of TV and I'll do something and like three months later it'll be on television. But that was like first run movies would be like that. They'd wrap them. 
They'd be previewing them within a month and they'd be cutting, recutting them. And then the final release would come out like a month later. Like it, it was a really quick turnaround. As Andrew said, yeah, it's, once television came around, they did have to start putting more effort and in, in budget into these movies and make them bigger spectacles because. Oh, yeah, that was a big thing in the 50s, too, with all these wacky things like Cinemascope. <laughs> this is so funny. The other day I watched uh, The Hustler, which is one of the great movies from the early 60s. And as you know, it's a really beautiful black and white character study, basically. Uh, written by Walt, the book is by Walter Tevis, who wrote The Queen's Gambit, and it's actually got a lot of parallels to The Queen's Gambit. <laughs> this crazy sort of individualist goes off and into this competitive world. But it starts out and it says, in Cinemascope. And it's like, what? It's shed in pool halls. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Why are you selling this? As a, this is not a biblical epic, you know. It's like, yeah, cool. You can see both sides of the pool table, I guess. I mean, that's kind of cool. But it's just like they're, they're, oh, he's brilliant. He's brilliant in that. Also, Jackie Gleason in that was such a brilliant choice. Oh, yeah. And you can tell that he really, he played pool. Like there's all these super cool shots where Paul Newman and Jackie Gleason are actually doing good pool shots on camera without cuts. I, I was so surprised by that choice, but it, it was just absolutely perfect. A fantastic film. You buy you buy them both as like guys who know how to do that. But that's just that was hysterical to me that they they have this the uh, Cinemascope logo in the front of that movie. Yeah, what you would have for like Ben Hur, you are now having for this pool hall movie. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but they just it was the it's that period of the that's like early sixties, but they're still like competing with TV. Like, hey, but the picture's bigger than your TV set. Look how wide the screen is on this intimate character study. <laughs> I mean, we laugh, but now it's just like see the new Christopher Nolan in IMAX. One hundred percent, or yeah, or whatever they call high digital effects these days. You know, the Hustler in four K. You know. You can really see the sweat beads on his forehead. Like, oh, great. And that's the other funny thing is that these sort of, these things that Hollywood does, they, they've always done. Yeah. Like just, you know, in a sense, there's also, it's just like the new version. Of, you can see every mark on the felt of the pool table. You know, technology and, and 3D and, you know, 3Ds have like all these iterations through the decades, you know. Yeah, no, I agree, especially because we were talking about the the rating system and, uh, you know, coming out without a rating was such a huge scandal and everything. And I'm just like, I have not checked the rating on a Netflix or Hulu or any of those movies, and I'm never going to. Like, Oh, my God. And now the dis- I don't have an issue with this, but now the descriptions of rate 2020, like yeah, before Queen's Gambit, it will say uh, or no, before The Crown, it'll actually say. There are scenes like she has, there's eating disorder scenes and they, they actually have trigger warnings about, you know, you're going to see her throw up and stuff like that. Or print lady, you know, Princess Diana. But yeah, my favorite thing, my favorite ratings uh, thing was the, when this started out, the X rating was a legitimate rating for what they felt was adult content, what they later called NC-17. So Midnight Cowboy, which is a movie about a male hustler, which... The sex is simulated, of course, but it was felt at the time that it was not appropriate for children, even with a guardian, so they rated it X. And then what happened was pornographers came along and said, X, now porn didn't go through the MPAA. <laughs> they didn't submit their movies for a rating. That was a completely different world and system. But they just arbitrarily put an X on their ads to get people into the porn movie. And then it became synonymous with porn. And then other pornographers were like, 
Oh, yeah? Well, guess what? Mine's triple X, <laughs> which is... It's like the dean in Amal House saying double secret probation. It means nothing. It's it's actually not a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so then they completely co-opt. So then poor Jack Valenti at the MPA is like, ah, shit. Now the X means nothing. Everyone thinks it's porn. We're three times as much porn as that other porn. <laughs> I've never even seen a porn movie. They don't come to us. So I love, I love the porn co-opting of the X rating. And then for a while, they were just like, yeah, I guess it's just. We'll just make R harder, and then we'll come up with PG-13. That's out. <laughs> <laughs> Was it, wasn't it uh, Temple of Doom that made them just go, we, got, we need something better than this, guys? I think so. Yeah, wasn't it? Where they were like, it's not quite an R, but it's a little intense for PG. Yeah. I just remember when I saw Airplane for the first time because it was PG. And so it just has that scene where the woman just comes on topless, just shakes and then moves. And I was just like, PG? And like my mom was just like... You didn't have PG-13. I was like, that wouldn't have been PG-13 now. She's like, yeah, fair point. <laughs> Probably the first time a lot of people of a certain generation saw breasts on film. <laughs> Is that movie? Yeah, it, it was It was uh, that and Titanic, I think, were the, were the big two. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. It's true. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think like the first actual nude breasts were just in 1962. Airplane was not far behind. <laughs> they hit that early and it had to be one of the earliest comedies to do it. Yes, there is. There is a quick breast joke in um, in Bananas, the Woody Allen film. There's a snake bite joke. You do the math. You get you see where this joke is going. You suck out the venom. Yeah. And now a woman runs by very quickly and she's holding her. But yes, anyway, it's neither here nor there. <laughs> no, I, I think you're right. That was a that was a, a big development. And, Thank God, uh, Mr. Hayes was dead by that point because he yeah. have, <laughs> he'd have a heart attack. I think like I was actually thinking like those guys like Joseph Breen and Will Hayes, who were these censorship guys, are fascinating characters, and I actually would love to see a film about one of them. I think it would have to be sort of a black comedy because in a way they they're kind of because they really are sort of because it's the old thing of the. The person who's most obsessed with sex is the censor, you know, <laughs> the one who's looking for it everywhere. It's like there's something really sick going on here. <laughs> the, yeah, the more we've been talking, the more I'm just like, man, I would love to see this. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, the the one who's just like, you cannot have those two characters leave that restaurant together. And it's just like, what do you think they're going to? Oh, we know what they're going to do. They're going to that alley. And who said that? No, no, I know. Yeah. It's implied. The way he shook his finger. I know what that means. <laughs> it's like, just settle down, guys. Settle down. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they, these these were huge characters at the time, despite the fact that they did not make movies in any way. Their impact on the film industry was massive. If the uh, positives then were the golden age of Hollywood as a whole and the collaborative aspect of the studio system and the where it went wrong was the dissolution of that aspect, as well as the uh, <laughs> the rating system, the general abuse of those in power in their defense. James, how do you defend this? Oh, the, the, you mean the rating system and the, and the censors? Any aspect you would like over where it went wrong. There's a lot there. Uh, well, I can't really defend the censorship. I don't really have a way in for that. Uh, except for my, my reference earlier that it made the people, it made the creators think creatively. And sometimes the solutions are arguably more effective than if you could actually show the thing or say the word. But yeah, I'm not really, I, I can't really say much for this censorship. But how would I defend those guys? If I was writing a movie about... I'm in. Hayes, I'm gonna, I'm <laughs> buckling up. Let's do this. 
I just, I don't know. I think that was the only way he could keep above the the abyss. <laughs> His personal abyss was decide was is getting off on the power of being some sort of moral arbiter. But I can't really, yeah, I can't really frame that positively. You know what? I think the best way we can phrase it positively is it did give us these creative solutions. You get beautiful lines in Casablanca. You get you get fun ways to insinuate uh, in some ways, you know, uh, even, you know, you know, sexier ways of implying sex than showing it. That those kinds of things. You- and even and even today, like you know, you're writing a screenplay, and it's just the question. It's it's not so much like oh, we can show this or that. It's like how do we get there? And it's just it's people are still doing that kind of problem solving every day. There's not a censorship board that says you can't show them going to bed together. But there's the problem of how do they end up in bed together? Why? <laughs> and what happens when they go to bed together? Like these are it's still problem solving, and so the problem solving of the creative problem solving is still a thing that hasn't really changed since 1935. They're just sort of different ways of solving the problem. And there's still constrictions. If you're doing a, a primetime TV show, you're going to there's certain things you you can't show or you decide not to show and just and then the other thing is like just being creative. Like a, a lot of stuff has been done already, so trying to think, you know, creatively. So yeah, that's that I guess the the way to the way to uh, defend the censorship guys is just to sort of acknowledge If it's it. going to have to exist, it's going to make creatives better. All creativity requires some sort of pressure that you're reacting against. The pressure might just be the blank page, you know, which every writer knows is a form of pressure. And a deadline is pressure, you know, and it's been done, but Simpsons did it as pressure. You know, how do I do this now, you know? So so that they they were there to sort of provide a constant pressure that helped people around these <laughs> choices. <laughs> I think that's a, a very good point because the in their defense is rarely like, here's why it was a good thing. It's more of exactly what you said. Here is the good thing that came out of the bad thing. That's right. And it's it's did spur a great deal of creativity and elegance, uh, I think, was a big thing, was that the, the, the way they found ways around this, not just into create film that followed the rules, but to create film that didn't follow the rules, but made it look like it did. <laughs> there was a, a lot. Yeah, yeah, and there is. It's like like one of the great movies of the studio, uh, uh, um, Hitchcock's Notorious, which that's when he was under... Hitchcock had, like, had a contract with David Selznick, who was an independent producer, but he was kind of... It was kind of a loose contract, like, basically... Selznick was almost like his agent. He would like rent him out to other studios and stuff. And Hitchcock was such an assured director that Selznick was less hands-on than he would be with other directors and stuff. Cause like we all remember, everyone's like Gone with the Wind, David O. Selznick. Like most people don't even remember who directed Gone with the Wind because it really is the producer's movie, you know? And actually, oh, my, sure. my favorite <laughs> Hitchcock way around this was they had a rule you couldn't kiss for longer than three seconds. Hitchcock did a scene with two minutes and 30 seconds of kissing, but had them break every three seconds. Yeah, well, that might be, there's like a really long kiss in Notorious. And Notorious actually has like, Ingrid Bergman's character is clearly a sexually experienced person. And like, there's no question about that. And then the whole device is she's going to, ma- she's going to sleep with this guy to get information. I mean, they have her marry her, but it's still not morally acceptable, you know, to Mr. Hayes or whatever. But so that that movie is sort of the sexual aspect of those characters is essential. And that movie is at the height of the Hayes office era. So and that's an example where the the tension and energy from that is fantastic. And you kind of feel like 
maybe something would be missing if he had complete freedom to show Ingrid Bergman in bed. Because I think that's a perfect movie and a perfect example of what could come out of that system. Where, you know, it's amazing what people can do when they bend but don't break the rules. They just there you go. That's a great way to put awesome. it. Awesome. Well, yeah, this has been. I, I, I love these episodes when I have somebody on that we we can just like just go just please talk and we'll just sit here. Uh, well, this top this is my this is topic A for me. This is like <laughs> it's like I'm totally into like old showbiz and old stuff like that. But yes, so I got to get up in the morning and report to MGM. They're they're putting me in. Uh, <laughs> they need a man with glasses to do a role. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna play the banker of Mon Pa Kittle. Go to the lake. <laughs> it's very exciting. Thanks for having me. Uh, James, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for picking this topic. This has been some of the most fun just reading uh, I've had for an episode in a long time. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, thanks for taking me up on this topic. It's a big one with me. And yeah. yeah da, 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 da. But remember, it all started out in 1901 with uh, <laughs> Edison photographing a man sneezing. <laughs> that's right i'm gonna do a remake of the sneeze that's it's gonna be uh epic it's about bruce willis getting hay fever it's gonna be awesome you know they remake the sneeze every 20 years it feels like but <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> and then it's all and then but of course it's 2020 so we have to look back at like you know oh his father once spanked him for getting a cold that's why he had it's such a relief when he sneezes that his father was a germaphobe and yeah it's really funny though because the lead from the 2000 version of the sneeze plays the father in the 2020 version i love how they merged that <laughs> that's right uh, michael douglas played the sneezer in the 80s and now he's the dad it was a sexual thriller in the 80s as all michael douglas films were at the time yes exactly and now it's actually we've got uh, florence Pugh as the sneezer it's a girl this time and she it's gender bent and everyone loves it <laughs> all right guys thank you oh thank you so much for coming on we really appreciate it and uh guys i i had so much fun in this episode if you did uh as well please uh, give it five stars subscribe it helps us so much james thank you again so much when thank you so much and uh, when i'll see you again next week Bye. Bye.